This morning's message is going to walk through a passage that not only is a passage that traditionally does not make people feel good, but it's actually at least PG-13 rated. You know what I mean by that? It's a little iffy, okay? And if you read it in the original Hebrew, it's much worse. It's actually probably more like an R-rated version. So I'm going to warn you, that's actually going to be part of the sermon this morning. And if you have children present, uh, it's God's word. It's there. It's important. But it also uses pictures and metaphors that are are difficult for us. Um, You know, the Bible is made up of it. The Old Testament is made up of three sections. The first is the the Torah, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they date back 3,300 years, and we've walked through three of those books this spring. And then there are two more parts. The ancient Hebrews called them the Kituvim and the Navi'im, the writings and the prophets. And the the writings are kind of the catch-all at the end of the category list. They have everything in them, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, all these weird books, Ruth, Esther. There's all sorts of things in the writings category. But the prophets, the Navi'im, they're actually uh, the majority of the Old Testament. Twenty-two books long, these prophets hold forth. And they're, they're really interesting. They, they have all sorts of things to say to our lives, but they're, they're difficult passage of scripture. This morning, we're going to walk through the book of Hosea, or at least a little bit of it. And we're going to kind of uh, understand what God's all about from Hosea's perspective. Now, prophets did a couple different things. You'll see it up there. They revealed God's words to people. They got in touch with God and they revealed what God was thinking and feeling to the people. You know, we have these, these new art, uh, I don't know what we would call them. They're not really paintings, but they're, they're art up there, right? We have spirit and we have truth. And what you're going to hear today is a prophet's heart. And he's, you're going to hear God's heart come through him. God's truth, but not just God's truth. God's truth with the emotion that God feels attached to it. And so God, the, the job of the prophet was to communicate about uh, what God feels and thinks to the people, his words and his heart to the people. And then secondly, he's supposed to lift up the people in prayer. You know, a lot of us tend to think of prophets as people who tell the future. That is a tiny minimum of what they actually did. They, they mostly talk about what God thinks and feels and reveal the heart of God to the people and then pray for the people to God. So this morning we're going to be talking about Hosea, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's really a controversial book, however. If you've read it, you know why. There's some things in Hosea that are really iffy, right? It's a racy story. It reads a little bit like one of those tabloids in the giant checkout line, you know. And you see these things and you're going, what is it doing in the Bible? And that's at least part of the scandal. But I hope, hopefully we're going to make sense. Now, there's a map up on the wall behind me, and uh, you'll see it's the northern part of Israel. You know, David, Moses is about 1300 B.C., and then it moves forward and it goes to 1000 B.C. That's about King David's lifetime. And King David's a great king, and he does a great job. And the, the nation's united under him, and it stays united underneath his son Solomon. But then something happens. About a couple hundred years before Hosea's time, there's this split, a divide happens, a civil war. And it goes on for the rest of the Old Testament. These tribes never get back together. And there's a northern nation, and it's called Israel. And there's a southern nation, and it's called Judah. And they are constantly at each other's throats, as good brothers are, right? They actually fight this battle for hundreds of years. And in Hosea's day, it's gotten to the point where the northern kingdom has just really gotten off track. Okay, And what's interesting is this, that of all those 22 prophets, they're written by people, each one of them, except for this one, from a southern perspective. Every bit of your Bible comes from the south of this map. That line, every bit of the Bible comes from south of the map, except for Hosea. This is the only writing prophet that we have that writes to the northern tribes of Israel. 
We don't know much about those people because they go into exile very early and, and they lose their land and they go off and they're kind of spread out throughout the world. And so Hosea is going to reveal God's words to this group of people and it's going to be different than any other group you're going to hear communicated to in any of the biblical books, okay? So those are just a little bit about what Hosea is about. So this morning we're going to actually read through the first chapter or uh, much of it, I'd say, uh, and we're going to kind of dive in and try to experience what Hosea is feeling. Now, understand that God wants to communicate his heart and his mind to us, right? Sometimes we hear God's word and we think it's just a bunch of rules. It's just factoids. It's explanations. We learn about God. Well, the book of Hosea is going to reveal in scandalous format how God feels. And if you're offended by this, that's at least part of the point, okay? I'm going to warn you. It is offensive. It starts out like this. It says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Really? Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. That word adulterous is actually very weak. It's a weak translation. It would be better translated a prostitute. This is what he's supposed to do. And God instructs him. He says, listen, you're supposed to reveal my heart. And the way you're going to do this is by actually going and finding somebody who lives on the wrong side of the tracks. My brother-in-law and sister have been staying with us this whole week. And my brother-in-law is an inner city pastor in Chicago. They have tremendous amounts of violence in their neighborhood. And he has one part of his block that everybody knows you don't go near because that's where the prostitutes are. He was telling me that's just, there's one part of their little community that he ministers to as a pastor where all of the prostitutes live. Now, you just got a picture. This is a smaller community. It's a place where everybody knows who you are. And so when God tells this man to do this, it's going to be one of those things that's going to be a public scandal. You're not going to have to read about it in the newspaper. Your neighbor already told you, right? And so here's this line, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. You know, I don't know who Gomer was, and the Bible doesn't tell us much about her. But what it does tell, her, tell us is that she lived on that part of the block where everyone knew who she was, and they knew what she was about. And when Hosea probably this good person that everybody said, well, that's a boy who's going to move up in life and do this, that, or the other thing. When he marries her, everybody probably went, oh my, you know? Their sensibilities were offended. And yet, why does God give the, the, what's the reason behind why God does this? He says, because the land has committed adultery. You know, if you go all the way back to Exodus, and we walked through Exodus a few months ago, the, the book of Exodus kind of reveals that the way God feels about idolatry is exactly the way a a man would feel about an adulterous wife. He feels when we put something in the place of God in our lives, when anything, whether it's a car or our finances or our children or anything about our world, our educational process, there's all sorts of things, our worry sometimes, sometimes it's bitterness that we can put in the place of God. When we feel anything so so poignantly that it replaces him, what he feels is that we cheated on him. You know, it's very easy for us to kind of uh, think that the Ten Commandments, you know, there's the Ten of those commandments, right? But number six starts the really bad part of the list, right? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Number sevens, thou shalt not commit adultery. Number eights, thou shalt not steal. Number nines, thou shalt not lie. Anybody want to confess to murder this morning? You want to just come up here? You know, I actually had East Coventry Police Department on standby in case anybody confessed. 
You know, it doesn't actually happen, right? I mean, murders do unfortunately happen, but that's not normal for us because we think of that as the really big crime. We think of that as the offensive uh, situation. Nobody would ever do that. And yet, somehow we think it's okay to get stuff in our lives in a misprioritized way where God somehow takes last or second place at least. And when we do, what this book is going to reveal to us is how not just God thinks, but it's going to reveal how he feels. It's going to reveal the spirit of what God feels as well as the truth of what he thinks about it. And you're going to feel through Hosea. Now, Hosea is a a guy who's called to emulate and understand and feel and reveal the heart of God to these people. And so they come upon this plan, he and God together, where he's going to act out the heart of God in a symbolic gesture. And people are going to see it for what it is. This is how God feels towards the nation of Israel. You know, sometimes we think love, we we say God is love. And 1 John actually tells us God is love, right? You know, I love my wife. And hopefully you love your spouse. But my love would be an angry love if the wrong sorts of things happened, right? A God who isn't angry about his wife cheating on him is a God that's not in love. You know, I had a a friend of mine have somebody uh, have a a problem like this in their life. And I I wonder, what would it be like if somebody confessed adultery and their, their spouse just said, well, that's no big deal. That's okay. I forgive. God forgives. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to just release the whole thing and no problem. Come on home at five o'clock when you get done with work. We'll be, we're going to go on with this marriage like it just continues. You know, sometimes we expect God to act just like that, though we have sinned and committed this crime of adultery towards him. We just call it something different. We say, well, it's the way the world works. It's normal. All of us misprioritize, and our world requires us to work too hard, and we have to put our financial stuff, we have to think about the future. We have all of this mindset behind us, but what Hosea tells us is, listen, you're actually breaking the heart of God. And he's angry, and he's tormented, and he's grief-stricken all at the same time. He is wounded when we hurt him. He's not somebody who just sits up there, a leader distant from us, who's spun the world into rotation and said, there, let it go. No, what he's actually going to do is communicate to us his pain. And he's sitting here, prescient and present, wondering why we would turn our backs on the heart of God. So we'll keep reading. But he marries Gomer, daughter of Dibleem, and she conceived and she bore him a son. It's very important, those words, she bore him a son. Those are the last time that you'll hear those words. That means she actually conceived with this former prostitute comes to marriage and they actually together conceive one child. We're going to read a little bit more about that. His name is going to be interesting. It says, Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Notice this time it doesn't say that Gomer bore Hosea a child. It doesn't say she conceived a child with Hosea. It says that she conceived again. And it's leaving us wondering, huh, how did this woman conceive this child? With whom did she conceive this woman? I told you it's a PG-13 sermon, but that's how the book reads. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah. And I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. 
After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. You're probably getting a feeling that there is a scandal going on here. And you get an inkling for the heart of what's behind this, right? This husband is going to be tortured by a wife who's not going to treat him as a woman should treat a man or as a man should treat a woman. There's going to be brokenness in this relationship. It's extremely dysfunctional. You catch on to all that stuff. But then there's all these little words like Jezreel. What does that mean? Lo ruhamah. That's actual Hebrew. Why do we have that in the sermon? We can't read that. Lo ami, these words. And let me break that down for you because those are actually very interesting and actually really important pieces to what this book is all about. The three children are named Jezreel, Lo Ruhamah, and Lo Ami. And, and this is what their names literally mean, okay? This is why it's important. There was a couple uh, kings before Hosea's time. There was this king who had all of his children wiped out in a valley, and the valley was named Jezreel. In fact, there's all sorts of battles that take place in the Old Testament. When Dave Willauer and I went to Israel, we landed in Tel Aviv, or just outside of Jaffa, and we landed, and they took us right away to the Jezreel Valley. And we looked at this very place that this little boy was named after, and it's one of the most horrific places in Israel's history. In fact, you know, when Revelation talks about uh, the, the battle of Armageddon, it's probably talking about this valley. It's saying that the, the world's end and all that's going to come with it is going to have to do with this name. It's one of those names that's absolutely horrible. You might as well name your kid Normandy or Gettysburg or Valley Forge, any place you can think of where there's a lot of people who have passed away in a violent sort of way. That's what this name is. And what God is saying behind this is, listen, You guys forsook God. And, you know, once we lose the heart of God in our lives, once we fail to love God, in Deuteronomy it said there's all these rules about loving God and loving people, but it starts with love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, right? That's the heart of what it means to be a God follower is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And then it goes on to say if you don't love God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, what happens? Broken things happen out here. All the rest of the world around you will be damaged in some way. The people you love will be damaged if you don't love God because you'll stop loving them eventually. Your kids will not love the people around them the way God intended them to because it all starts with the first of the Ten Commandments, not the last. The Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder. The Seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Neither one is nearly as important as the First Commandment, which says that we're to have no other gods. And Hosea says, listen, if you're going to have other gods, then there are going to be all these cultural effects of having other gods. And when you have all those other gods, you're going to cheat on your spouses and you're going to murder people like this terrible battle that takes place in this place. All this stuff is going to happen and your society has become nothing more than a battlefield. God loves these people, but they don't love each other. You know, we were trying to help somebody as a church a while back and somebody said to me, you know, you can't love somebody more than they love themselves. You know, that's one of those maxims that's very doubtful. But, you know, the heart of what it meant at the time was this person was saying no to the help we were giving them. We were offering help, and they were saying, well, I don't want that sort of help. A lot of times that's how it is with us and God, right? God loves these people, and they don't love each other. And they're destroying their society and saying, okay, listen, symbolically name your kid the worst name you can possibly name him because everything in this world is absolutely falling apart. It's going horribly. Jezreel. Let's name him Gettysburg. Let's name him Normandy. Well, lo ruhamah literally means, lo means no in Hebrew. Just no. That's all it means. And ruhamah means love. And not just any love. It means the love a mother has for a child. 
It's that, that womb love that has the attachment between a, a woman and her baby. You know, mothers have a uh, connection with their child and their children like men don't. I'm just convinced. It's different between a woman and her children than it is for a man. And this word has to do with a mother's love. And what God says is, I don't love you anymore. I gave birth to you. I started this plan. I formed you out of the dust of the ground. I breathed the breath of life into your lungs, and I wish I didn't. You know, if you've ever had trouble with an Old Testament passage, it's about now that you can start thinking about that, right? This is about as horrific uh, an Old Testament passage as you're going to read. Lo ruhamah, unloved. But he goes on and he says one more line. No ami, or lo ami. Not my people is what that literally means. You know, Hosea had these children and they probably started to look like somebody else. The great writer Leo Tolstoy, um, he wrote War and Peace and he wrote Anna Karenina. And the great works of art, he was Russian. He had a bunch of kids with his wife, Sonia, but he actually early in his marriage had an affair with somebody on their plantation, their, their, the land that they owned together. And Sonia had to grow, uh, live throughout their marriage knowing that there was a woman in their community who had a child who looked just like her husband. And she writes about it. Scathing feeling. She's got this tormented, gut-wrenching feeling that her husband, who is supposed to love her alone, was actually out there. And for the rest of her life, she looks at this boy who she watches grow up and become a man and realize that is the disenfranchised son of her husband. Makes her angry. When Hosea is writing this, he's telling us that maybe Lo Ruhama is not his child and he doesn't have to love her. And Lo Ami, on the human level, it means that maybe she looks like the guy down the block. You can start to feel the synergy, the connectedness between a God who is absolutely devastated by the way his people treat him and a man who is absolutely devastated by the way his wife treats him. Can you understand where this is going? It's not just the truth of what God would think about things. We know he hates adultery. We know he hates idolatry. He said that long ago. But now he's letting us know in a way that maybe breaks through the crusty exterior of our lives where we grow immune to what God really feels. And we think, well, he actually is just a forgiving God, just a loving God. And this passage says he's more than that. He's somebody who loves and is passionate about our lives. He's connected. And so it actually hurts him when we do things that take his place and put things in the place of God in our lives. Well, that's not how the story ends. It goes on from there. So let's read a little further. You know, this is one of the things about reading the Old Testament that really causes people to have conflict. You know, right away, after what is maybe the most devastating passage in Hosea, highly dramatic, sitting there to try to smack us in the face with the truth in the heart of God, is this passage, and it's going to do a 180-degree turn. And if you just pick up your NIV Bible and you look at it and you just read this, you you know, our eyes are unaccustomed to seeing this uh, jump. But it's almost as though we should just start a whole new page at this moment because what happened before is judgment. The ancient monks used to say that they had days of desolation and days of consolation with God. They would meet with him in prayer, but some days just felt like days where God was deconstructing their lives. They had all this sin, and it, it didn't feel good. This walk with God, some days it doesn't feel good, right? It actually feels like God taking us apart. Hebrews tells us that whom he loves, he chastens, or he disciplines. He corrects us if he loves us. And, and that's what the monks were talking about. We had this desolating sort of experience with God, and then God shows up and consoles us. Well, the first part of this, this storyline is very is just absolute desolation. It's destructive. It's painful. God's heart is broken and Hosea's heart is broken and we're left there going, what? What's going to happen next? 
But then comes the consolation, and here's how it comes. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. Anybody ever read words like that before? Where have you read them? Do you remember? In Genesis, we read words like this. You know, Hosea is built on top of Moses. It's built on top of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It recounts at points the Ten Commandments and says, this is why God is angry, because his heart is hurt, because your heart is hurting his heart. But you're hurting him in the form of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And God has been saying that all the way since Moses. And these people aren't doing it. And what Hosea says is, you don't love God. That's what the, how the math adds up, right? You don't love God. But the, the result of all that, is that he recounts all this stuff about Moses, but then he decides to turn to consolation. And God says, but wait, there's another shoe to drop. And it's going to be a very different sort of feeling to experience what God wants to say now. And instead of talking about Moses and all the Ten Commandments and the law and all the ways these people go wrong, now he goes back to Abraham. This is a quote from Genesis and the promise that God hands to Abraham, who's very much earlier, 400 years earlier than Moses. It's as though we're going to go back to the early part of the romance experience between God and this people. He says, you know, I remember when you used to love me. I remember loving you when you were young and we were just kind of moving into the Exodus experience. I remember setting you free from Egypt and I remember wandering for 40 years and providing quail and manna and doing all this stuff. I remember that. And then you broke all these rules. So let's go back even before that where the promise started. And where did it start? In a worse moment than even this, where the world's history had broken down, where people had sinned so badly in Genesis 6 that it says God was sorry he ever made man. We were hurting each other so bad as a race of people, devastating and damaging each other to such an extent that God says, I don't know what else to do but to end it all with a flood. And coming out of that, God says, let's start over and let's start with one man. And let's see if we can have a relationship. I can know him and he can know me. And I'm going to reveal myself to this man. And his name is Abraham. And God says, listen, if you do what I tell you and you go where I call you to go, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to plant this seed in your line. You're going to have children that are going to go on and they're going to bless the whole world. They're going to transform the world. Abraham's descendants, you're you're, you're going to transform the world, God says. And at one point, Abraham says, well, God, I can't even have one child, let alone a million. And God says to him, look up at the stars in the sky. He looks up, and there are all these stars. And he says, see, can you count them? Well, no, nobody can count the stars in the sky, right? I read this past week, or I heard from some speaker, I guess, that if you put your thumb up, you're blocking out over 450 stars just with a thumb. Just with your thumb, you know, that means just with this little bit here, that means all around, there's millions of them. Then God says, go to the Mediterranean Sea and go to the beach and pick up a handful of sand. And he says, listen, if you can count those little specks of sand, your children will be even more than those specks of sand. And Hosea picks up on that hundreds of years later. And he says, God's not done with these people. Lo Ami, you're not my people. Lo Ruhamah, you're not loved. Jezreel, your whole society is like a battlefield where you're destroying yourselves and each other. But let me tell you that your sand, your children will be still like the sand of the seashore. I still love these people, he says. And he goes on, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are my people, or you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited. And they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of God planting. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. 
If you have trouble with the Old Testament and you read a passage and you find it to be difficult, keep reading. Because it's often that God makes these absolutely nasty statements, just like husbands and wives do in a fight, right? You know, in Pottstown, we live fairly closely together. If you have a conflict, people know about it. And I can tell you the people on our block who are not experiencing good marriages. I won't tell you. I don't tell anybody because that's not appropriate. But, you know, we have this experience where we know who's having a fight. And I hear the words. And if I held those people to the words they said, we'd be very sad people indeed, right? In the heat of a battle, we say these words. Now, I'm not saying God says words needlessly. But I will tell you that I think he has to speak our language. And we are used to fighting in ways that are hyperbolic. They're over-exaggerated. They're words that are larger than we intend them to be. Just because we said it doesn't mean that we meant it, according to one pop artist who's got a song out right now. Just because I said it does not mean that I meant it. Well, God always means what he says, but he's communicating to people who don't. And so he speaks in this large, gigantic way, saying, my heart is like Hosea's heart, and I don't feel like loving children who are not my children. If you're not going to come home at night, what, what sort of marriage is this, says God? And then he goes on and says, but listen, Your children will be more than the sand of the seashore. And I still love these kids. And he turns everything around. Look at these words right here. See, it says, God's planting and my people and my loved one. It's really important to understand the language behind this. Jezreel, Ruhamah, and Ami. Those are the actual Hebrew words behind that. So if you went backwards and you said, God planting, that actually means Jezreel. And if you got to my people, that means Ami, not lo Ami. But Ami, he's renaming this little boy. He says, you're not, no longer are you not my people, now you are my people. Not lo Ruhamah, but actually Ruhamah. You are now the one I love. He turns this all around. And he says, Jezreel is now going to be something different. You know, Jezreel was a name that had a double meaning. It wasn't just a battlefield. It was actually a place, uh, it was actually, it actually literally means God is planting. Besides being a battle place, Jezreel is a very fertile valley. And it's named because that's where God was pictured as planting. But what God says here is, just like in Abraham's day where he's planting seeds that are going to bless the whole world, he's going to use this world, this people, to actually bless the whole world still. It's interesting. He turns the whole thing around. Can you feel the 180 degree turn? Jezreel, God is planting. He's not done with you. He's still working. Who knows? You know, sometimes I look back in my life and I see little seeds, little seeds that get planted. Somebody taught me a verse when I was three or four or five, and it bears fruit when I'm in my mid-30s. Last night I went up to the community garden, and I keep going by. You know, we planted it about a a couple weeks ago, and I wondered if things were starting to come up, and I saw little pieces of corn you know, a little nudging. The dirt was just kind of cracking in some places, and I can see those little, those little growth of, the, of what, what we planted a couple weeks ago, Terry Lewis and I, and now it's, now it's coming out. And what God says is, listen, it's not just a battlefield. I'm still planting. I'm still capable of working with his people. Turn back to me. I want to use you. I want to move in your life and create this new experience with you. No longer are you low Ruhamah, but you are my loved children. No longer are you lo ami, the other people's people. You are no longer somebody else's son, but you are mine. You know, the Bible uses this word, wording again and again. In the New Testament, it's going to talk about the relationship we are supposed to have with God. Ephesians 1 describes an adoption process. The previous, child, previous children of God have to be readapted because we've been leaving God behind, right? 
Jesus does this most magnificently. You know, you can picture any number of passages. John chapter 8 with a woman caught in adultery. This woman comes to him and, and she's brought there, dragged by all these different people. And, and Jesus says, the first person who doesn't have any sin, well, you can chuck that first stone. And of course, the crowd dissipates. You've read that story, right? And he says, woman, they don't condemn you. I don't either. Go and sin no more. What God's literally saying to her is, listen, you are Ruhamah. You are loved. There's this little guy who climbs up in a tree to catch Jesus as he's passing by. His name's Nicodemus, and he's a castaway, or Nicodemus, Zacchaeus. And he's cast away from society because he's a tax collector. And he's this person who is just kind of disrespected by everybody. And Jesus notices him, and he actually goes to his house for dinner. And he says, you are my child. You are Ruhamah. You are loved by God. And I can even use people like this. I can use prostitutes, says God. I can use people who are tax collectors. I can use any number of people. I don't know what's in your past, but one of the things that Hosea says is, you can't possibly have made God so angry that he doesn't want to love you today. He is still very much caring for you in his anger. His anger is actually a sign of his love. He's madder because he loves you. And when you walk away from him, how is he going to feel? He cares. And his heart comes out just like Hosea. At points in the story, I can just kind of picture Hosea on a Friday night. His wife goes to the five and dime uh, for this, that, or the other thing. She's going to be back in 10 minutes. And three hours later, she's not home. And he's wondering, what's that child going to look like? You know, who's she with right now? His guts are twisting, and it's God and Hosea sitting alone together on the couch, and it's the prophet with his God, and they're talking about this. And God is saying, this is how I feel about my people when they don't spend time with me. This is how I feel about my people when they don't put the first of their resources towards me. This is how I feel about my people when what's really going on in their hearts is just absolute religion, but actually not a relationship. You know, God is all about revealing himself. That's what it is. The story of the Bible is the story of God showing us himself. We're supposed to be people who know each other. And we're supposed to be known by God. He built us to know each other and to know him. And this relationship is what we're all about. And this storyline is about us realizing that God wants to be known. He's not a distant God who just from a distance spun the world into existence. He's actually a present God, very much in love with each person who wants to hear the heart of what's going on in every person's life. And what he says in this passage is you are loved no matter what you've done in the past. That's the opposite of what you'd read at first, right? You know, by the time you get done with Hosea 1, you realize that God is a tremendously gracious God. He is exactly who you probably thought he was before you listened to this message, but you might not have known about how he felt about it. You might not have known how his heart aches when we go in the directions that we go, going this way or going that way, growing in our bitterness and our hedonistic desires. What he's saying is, come back to me. I want to know you. I love the story of knowledge in the Bible. It's, it, no means something more in the Bible. You know, there's this, there's this word in Yiddish that's kind of a, 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 it's Hebrew before it was Hebrew. It comes from Europe. And uh, Jews talk about it. They say, yada, yada, yada. Anybody know what that means? Yada, yada, yada. It's actually a little bit scandalous, right? Like the story. It means to know something. But when you say no, it kind of has to do with, Well, maybe you know them in a bigger sense. In Genesis 4, that word is used repeatedly. It says, Adam knew his wife and they had a child, right? 
That's what it means to know. Know is a much bigger word for the, in the Bible than it is for us. We just think if we've read something, we know it. No, if we know the person, we have intimate knowledge of them. Nobody should know the person this way unless you're married to them, right? And so knowledge is very important, this connection, this relationship. And what God is revealing through Hosea is that I wish my people knew me and I wish I knew them, but they're trying to hide from me. They're like so many other people saying, we're not your people, God. We're not, we don't want your love, God. We don't want you to plant. We want to plant our own way in life. We want to create our own way. We want to be our own people. We want to go and do what we want to do. And God says, no, listen, I love you. And I'm going to still love you even through this whole mess. But I'm going to be angry. And my heart's going to hurt. You know, if you don't read Hosea and if you don't, if you don't read these parts of the Old Testament, some of the things that God is revealing as he to- goes along in a story, you know, we have, we have the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. It would be better entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the book of Acts is all about God acting. Well, the whole Bible is about God acting. Genesis begins with God saying, let there be light. God acted in his words and there was light. God said, let the dry ground be separated from all of the waters. And it happened. And it goes on and on and on. The acts of God impacted Abraham, Moses, David, and his sons. And now we're here in Hosea and we're really reading about some of his actions down here. And, you know, that's the storyline of what God's all about. And Hosea reveals that God is not okay with just the rules being followed, with just religion being experienced. He wants to personally be known in his heart. He wants the spirit of how he feels to be connected to the human race. And somehow we think it's okay just to get the truth and be unemotional about the whole experience. If you've never cried about your sin, you haven't understood what Hosea is talking about. But when you see that Hosea and God feel the same way about cheating wives as, as, as what this story communicates, then we realize what we've done to God is devastating. I find it interesting then that on the night that Jesus is betrayed, after he's done the feet washing, after the, commun- the first communion service, he heads to the Garden of Gethsemane, still one of the most poignant places I've ever been to in my life. I'll never forget being there and sitting there and realizing this is where Jesus was talking with these disciples. And in John chapter 17, he says a line that's just really, really interesting. Uh, it says this. We're going to skip a slide here because of time. But it says this. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No. You might read that word and think, well, it's enough if you met Jesus in third grade. It's enough if I had a relationship with him back there. And it's just not. I'm not telling you where you're going as far as eternity is concerned. But what God is all about is getting to a place in your life where you are involved in a love relationship, where you are passionately feeling what he's feeling, the way Hosea felt what he felt where you're realizing that his heart is so much towards you that when you do things that hurt it, he's angry. And when you do things that are absolutely expressive of love, he just rejoices in it. You know, sometimes we think of God as less than emotional. Compared to the most emotional person you know, God is more emotional. Okay? He has more of a heart. His heart is more connected to the human race than any other being could be. He has more of a liveness in his self than any of us can even imagine because we're so deadened by sin in this world that we don't understand the heart of God behind it. 
And so he reveals this whole thing. And Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, walk intimately with you, feel the passion of a God who loves them, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Even those of us who have failed dramatically in our lives, like Zacchaeus, or like the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair, or like the woman caught in adultery, or any number of things. I don't know what sin you've done. You might think I'm low on me, or I'm low Ruhamah, but God is saying, listen, I love you, and I'll offer you eternal life if you will just decide to be known and know God. You know, about 500 years ago, there was this monk. He was Augustinian, of all things. He was an Augustinian monk, and he had a couple of different doctorate degrees, one of the smartest guys of his age. And yet he wanted to know God, and he lived in a monastery, and the monastery became almost like an imprisoning set of walls. And he just found that the more he lived there, the less he felt that God was part of his life. And he was supposed to be the person who got religion. He was a priest of all things. And yet it didn't work that way. And he wasn't experiencing anything of God. And he picked up the New Testament and he started to read it again. He'd read it countless times, no doubt. But he read in Romans and Galatians this line. And it said, the just shall live by faith. And he realized that all of what he was doing was striving and working and efforting after a God who really didn't want him to work so hard. He just wanted to know him. And he said, you know, I'm supposed to believe and put my life in the hands of Jesus, who offered me eternal life. If I know Jesus, then I know God. And if I know God, then I have eternal life. And I've got to stop working so hard. And he realizes the church in his day is all about working. Everybody just has to work harder. In fact, the church had grown quite scandalous in his day. They sold these things called indulgences, and you could get your relatives out of purgatory and into heaven for a few bucks, you know, building a gigantic cathedral for the church and getting your person out of, out of jail, so to speak, and into heaven. Well, that, that, that's not faith, right? He says, I've got questions about this. So he nails the arguing points on the, on the church door that's most proximate to him. It's a church called Wittenberg, Germany. And the man's named Martin Luther, and he started accidentally in that moment the Protestant Reformation, all because he realized that the just shall live by faith. Now, interestingly, he uses a word when he starts to examine this. Now, the story of Hosea is scandalous, right? Some of you were actually a little excited that we were reading this book this morning. I know you were, right? I mean, honestly, it, it, it grabs our attention. That's the point of why God tells this story this way, because our attention needs grabbing. We have hard hearts like the people of Israel, and he's communicating to people with hard hearts, so he has to communicate in a dramatic way. This is cinema. It's like a cinematic experience, right? It's like a movie. This is the sort of thing you, you'd watch on Friday night at home after a red box visit instead of hearing about in church. That's the scandal. Or maybe the scandal is that this sort of thing is in the Bible. I mean, honestly, really? God's going to put this in his word? This isn't the pious righteousness that we expect when we come to church. That's another level of scandal. Well, you know, we had Tony Campalo here a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, actually, and he was famous for going around, and I don't have the guts to do this, and I won't do it, but he was famous for going around and saying a bad word in front of audiences just like you. And he'd say this word, and then he'd say, you know, the tragedy and the scandal is that you're so offended by this bad word I just said that you're not really thinking about what this message is about. And that's that people are dying because they don't have enough food, and they're going to hell because they don't know Jesus. And you're so worried about that word. You know, one of the things that this storyline is about is that the scandal that we think of as the scandal is not the great scandal at all. The scandal is not that a woman fell into sexual sin. I don't know how many counties are in Pennsylvania, but I guarantee that a woman has fallen into sexual sin in every one of those counties, right? 
probably dating all the way back to William Penn. And men have too. Men are no better than women. We've got scandal all over us. I don't know when you're going to read the next story about a, a pastor or a politician who falls into sexual sin, but they're all over the place. Don't even buy those newspapers. That's not scandal. It's so tried and true. We've done it. We've, we've failed a million times. And if we got into the nitty-gritty and we just started revealing ourselves, you sinned and I've sinned, right? That's not scandal. And it's not even scandal that God put this in the book because our hearts are hard. That's the scandal. And what, what Martin Luther talks about is this. He says, you know, the true scandal is the cross. The true scandal is that a God who loves us this much would somehow be left behind by people whose hearts grow hard. The true scandal is that the one, is not that somebody fell into sin, but that somebody who never sinned would become sin. He, he never knew sin, and he became sin for us. That's a scandal, right? And he says, listen, the scandal of the human race is not that they have sinned. The scandal of the human race is that Jesus died on a cross and that God offered his own son for payment for our sins. That's the scandal that we should really be focused on. Stop thinking about all these other little trifling scandals that dominate the human race. That's just weak stuff. The one scandal that should dominate is the storyline that we all need to look at is the grace of a God that loves us so much that says, you are my people and you are loved and I'm still planting and I'm still going to reap in your life. I'm going to grow this thing that you're never going to see coming and it's going to be larger than all of you, but it's going to have to do with the cross. It's not going to have to do with the wisdom of the age. It's not going to have to do with philosophy. It's not going to have to do with all the things you want to turn to. This is a moment when you'd like to make your money more. And instead, God is saying, I'm going to become less. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to submit rather than dominate. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll close with this set of scriptures. Where is the wise man, says Paul? Where is that scholar? You know, I'm a person who has a couple degrees, and this just cuts you to the core. Your wisdom is nothing. All that seminary experience, honestly, it's not a big deal. You don't learn that much in seminary. Your heart doesn't learn to be soft in seminary. I guarantee you. In fact, if anything, it learns to be hard. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Paul writes, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, the, of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a miraculous sign. I love this because, you know, we want miraculous signs. That's you and me. Our finances don't add up. God, please save us. We get cancer. Please, I get those prayer requests. And I should get them. There's nothing wrong with that. But God, we would know you were here if you reached into our life and if you did the most amazing things. You know, he does that all the time. Jews demanded miraculous signs and they saw him. If they would have been along the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' lifetime as he was doing all that earthly ministry, they would have seen lepers' skin turned to just perfect stuff that would have been Mary Kay proud. They would have seen, they would have seen blind men see and lame men walk. There were miraculous signs in plenty. But that's not what it's all about. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. They wanted the information. They were the philosophers in Paul's day. They were looking for the truth about how things came to be the way they are. But we preach Christ crucified. Literal Greek, scandalon, a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The true scandal is not Gomer. That's just a poor girl who lost her way, right? And it's a race of people, us included possibly, who have lost 
our way. The true scandal is that Jesus died on the cross and he mocked every bit of the wisdom of the age and all of the power and glory, the health and wealth gospel of our day, the prosperity that we all wish we had. Jesus didn't experience any of that. You're looking for a savior and you look on a cross? You're looking for somebody to save you from the oppression that's inside your heart and you look for a person who is dead or dying. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul says, listen, that's the true scandal. The true scandal is that God offered his life for our life and he was willing to take it to the point where he died on a cross for our sins. That's not where the story ends. It goes on one step further. Verse 24 of this chapter. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Somehow in that resurrection, somehow on that cross, Jesus trumped every bit of the scandal of our era. He took all of the philosophy of our age and he made it into something very, very small in comparison to what he accomplished. All of the miraculous signs in the history of the world are smaller than the one miraculous sign, and that's the forgiveness that we experience in Jesus Christ. And the scandal is that the person who knew no sin would become sin for you and I. That's the scandal. And Hosea says, listen, this God loves you. And he says it in artful form, and Christians fall apart every time they read it, saying, oh, God doesn't love us. God is saying these people aren't his people. He's divorcing them. No, God is pulling them back in, and he's using language that can draw on their imagination and grab their hearts. Maybe you're here today, and you're somebody who's fallen into some failure. Maybe you're here, and you have some moment in your past, and you think, I'm not really a child of God. Maybe you're here and you want to think you are, but you're kind of somehow in your life faking it a little bit. You're really going, I'm not for real. And you can feel the fact that your faith is like that soil that Jesus talks about, that the seeds fall on and the roots grow just a little bit, but they don't dig deep down. They don't go very far. And the fact is, those are the people, you and I included, who fake it and think somehow that we're not a part of this grace-filled story. And we're saying we're the children of God, but we're much, much less. And God is saying, I want to make you more. I want to call you mine. You know, the Bible ends. It begins with people knowing each other and children are born. And then that word becomes more with Jesus using it. And he says, knowing God is the source of eternal life. It ends with a marriage story. You know, the, the last part of the book of Revelation has this, it reads like it's a sequel to the book of Hosea. It really does. You know, Hosea starts with this scandalous prostitute entering marriage and then exiting marriage, and then who knows how far it goes. But it ends up in chapter 3 that she actually has gotten herself in so much debt that she becomes a trafficked person. And Hosea actually has to go buy her back, his own wife, from another man. Who knows what she looked like at that point. But God says, I'm still not done. And even though she's gone out and become a slave and gone through who knows what, God wants her back, and Hosea takes her back as well. And the storyline is that of Jesus purifying this church that is so messed up, filled with the scandals that we all have in our lives. And then the one true scandal sets us all free. And we have this ending point where we come and eat a dinner with Jesus. And he says, I am the husband that the church has always needed. I am the bridegroom that this family needs. That's a scandal, right? The scandal is that he lets us back in. The scandal is that he lets us come home. If you haven't joined that scandal, this is the scandal you need in your life. All those other scandals are less. They're nothing. They're just weak little trivialing stuff that we like to gossip about. This scandal is the true story of how Jesus saves the world. Join me in prayer.